there are always going to probably be on the surface cheaper ways of getting what you want. And you have to say, but that comes with a tax. And the tax is that they're not supporting the community, that pretty soon you're going to get overrun by dope. Pretty soon you're going to be overrun by crime. Pretty soon dope dealers are going to see your town as like this perfect place to come flood, flood your streets with their evil top poison. You know, all of that comes when you decide I can get something cheaper somewhere else. And it doesn't matter if I support my uh, mom and pop. It doesn't matter if I don't support my mom and pop that, yes, is going to be twice as expensive, maybe more so than, 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 than say, the, uh, uh, the Walmart outside of town. There's no doubt about that. There's simply no doubt about that. But it's this way of saying, I want to do everything I can because I understand the tax that I'm paying. I first found out about Sam Quinones when I read Dreamland, which is a book about the opioid crisis in America. And it kind of, it broke the story of the opioid crisis because he basically told the story of that really brief letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine that allowed pharmaceutical companies to market heroin basically to all kinds of doctors and all kinds of people. And then he also, because of his history with the drug trade in Mexico, was able to connect... He has a history of drug trade in Mexico? No, so he studied the drug trade in Mexico and like cartels and gang culture and he lived in Mexico and so he had a lot of experience with it. Not necessarily as a drug kingpin. I don't think that he would want to do that. We still are waiting for the drug kingpin to come on the show. Yeah. If you know any, please let us know. But he he traced what was happening as people went from pharmaceutical drugs to street drugs and then he traced how the cartels started to produce fentanyl and then started to distribute that not just in terms of heroin, but started putting it basically into every single drug that is on the street in America, which has boosted to, you know, 10,000 the crisis that was happening during the opioid crisis, because now it's fentanyl and fentanyl is crazy lethal. It's super uncontrolled and people are are dying and no one's really talking it's about it. It's been a wild ride from institutionalized drugs to closing that economy but shunting all the business to this underworld. And we had a really interesting conversation with Sam and I think we came up with some interesting solutions for going forward as well. And I learned a lot. Yeah. Localism, um, just finding ways to bring people together, finding ways to rebuild these communities that have been absolutely shattered by decades of terrible drug use and terrible death and destitution. And he's... Legalization plus accountability, which is an interesting place that I hadn't really explored yeah, explicitly. He... I hadn't been able to put my finger on it before. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to account it's people taking responsibility for fixing their own crisis, where he's like, people in the Rust Belt that are succeeding aren't waiting around for a factory to come back. They are figuring out how they're going to solve their crisis themselves. And that's that's kind of a change. And the whole idea that we can really take control of the tiniest little things in our lives, which frees us from depending on the godlike structures that are above us, and it really brings a lot of peace to your life. And it might just be the solution for our growth-centric, capital-centric universe that we've built here. 
where everybody's lonely and atomized and completely unconnected from their neighbors and their friends and everything else. So it's a lot of optimism. It's a lot of really crazy things that Sam has uncovered during his storied reporting history. We think that you're really, really going to enjoy it. We hope that you support us on Patreon because we need your support in order to keep the podcast happening. We're at Demystify Psy on Patreon. And with that, enjoy the conversation. The scientific revolution starts now. Talk about homogenizing America. That's exactly what the drug cartel world in Mexico has done with our drug um, offerings. It's very much like what, what happened happens when you go the interstate, drive across the interstate, cross country, you see the same same Hampton Inn, same Burger Kings, et cetera. It's the same stuff over and over and over and over. Um, and that's really what they've done to the drug offering because they can make so much of it. Now they can cover the country. They have, they have covered the country and dropped the price as they've covered the country. It's an amazing, remarkable. It's like a triumph of capitalism in an, in an interesting, weird way. It's like this underground economy. It's a triumph of capitalism. It's also the triumph of, of um, many years of grinding Mexican corruption, in my opinion. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, it never would happen uh, otherwise. I mean, we talk about what a failure the drug war was here in the United States. I think in Mexico, they would love if they had a drug war. Hmm. They've never had one. They've never, because they've never had one. It's always been sabotaged by major forces within the country. And that's why you get Chapo Guzman. Right, you got the multi guy who was listed as one of the the wealthiest a billionaire, seventy seventh wealthiest billionaire in the world was Chapo Guzman about whenever it was mm. many years ago. That's yeah. why it's because you get this, you have this um, relentless um, withering of institutions, of the right people, of good people, of you know, and the the current president right now. Uh, I mean, I think he's uh, almost insane. How? Why? Um, I don't know why he's almost insane. He says stuff that that makes absolutely no sense. He's uh, clearly bought off by these these very powerful forces. And um, I covered him when I was in Mexico. Uh, I lived there for ten years, and when I was there, he seemed lucid and and reasonable and balanced. And he has stopped. That you, the, the, it's very Trumpian, in my opinion. Although he's from the left. I mean, the idea of the government being bought off by very powerful entities sounds creepily familiar as well in the United States. Oh, I, I would disagree about that. Um, I know. I, I have never seen anything remotely, remotely close to what goes down down in Mexico in the United States. And and uh, on the contrary. The, you can see this um, very, very clearly if you just go to the border. Go to El Paso. Ask the people in El Paso what their murder rate is. It's like 10 or 20 murders a year. For a town like that, which is, what, 400,000? I, I actually don't know how large El Paso is. One of my favorite towns in, the, in America is El Paso. But um, uh, you go across to Juarez, it's 3,000. You know, it's two, three thousand. I, when I was there last, it was three thousand. You know, so we don't have 
you have incidences of corruption. There is no doubt you always will have. Um, and our police forces used to be truly, truly incompetent and nepotistic in the 30s, say, and, the, and so on. But over in the post-war world, we have developed amazingly good police forces um, and, and un, unhindered by, say, um, the, the, it's night and day. I'm not we're, the, 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 in the United States, we have some issues with policing. There's no doubt. But it is night and day. OK, and not the same thing. Any Mexican will tell you that, um, particularly any Mexican who's lived in both countries. And I th and but I think that the difference is in it's it's not the same thing in terms of the violence and the the crime. It is I mean the way that I imagine it is that someone who is living in Mexico looks at their government and is like our government is incapable of dealing with this threat that comes from this violent subset of society. And so the experience that they have is that their government is incapable of protecting them from horrific violence. At the level of the policing. At the level of the policing. But I think that... But, but, but I think there's something else happening over here. Yeah, like I think that when I look at the political landscape in America, I, I feel like there isn't really a lever that people can pull on in order to change things and it's not violent the same way that it is in Mexico but yet you have the fact that you know the the FEC is unable to maintain campaign contribution fund limits the corporations are people doors the huge pollution problems industry. I mean right? it's more legalized here for sure but there's a very big 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 difference that you don't understand unless you live in Mexico and when you do you see it's an eye-opening thing um, in Mexico, it's not that the that it, it is that the government is incapable of, of preventing, um, you know, you from waking up and having a pile of bodies at the at the corner near where you live. Imagine imagine such a thing happening or a guy hanging uh, from from the overpass. It happens all the time in Mexico now or has been happening all the time in the last whatever, almost 20 years now. Um, it's that. Elements of the government are part of that, you, um, and and frequently the more powerful they get, the more difficult it is to be a right-minded, good-intentioned um, public servant of any kind, cop or whatever. It doesn't doesn't matter. It's mm -hmm. very very difficult. Th that's the difference. That there is um, the entire cartel structure of Mexico was was founded with essential, long, sustained help from elements within the Mexican government. It was not that Mexico, Mexican, the Mexican government, I'm not sure if you could still say this, but certainly in the 1980s when the cartel structure was being truly set in place, you could, it, it, the Mexican government was one of the world's great drug traffickers. They were part of that. There were certain elements of the government, not the entire government, which is very vast. I'm saying that there are certain very powerful elements within the government and aided by certain very, very powerful politicians. It's, 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 it's like there is some vein of this. We have a lot of drug trade in the United States that's legal, right? Vioxx famously killed 40,000 people that they knew about, uh, that the company that, uh, that was distributing Vioxx at the time knew about. And they had their fingers in the, the spinal column of the government at the time. So it's a, it's much quieter here. But it's cleaner. It's cleaner. It's sanitized. 
but there, there's, it's certainly not unique to the underground world. I, I think that the visibility and the violence and the outright blood and gore is, is, is terrible and, and astonishing, but you wouldn't see that in America. I, I don't think we see the bodies that die from the drug trade often, especially people who die from, you know, the legal opioids. You know, I, I've personally lost, no, I have lost family members to that. And, uh, you know, they died very quietly um, in that, you know, it's not something people want to talk about. Um, we don't even have bodies out in public for over 100 years. And, you know, open caskets are fading. And it's interesting how we just don't really deal with death in the United States on its face. And I guess you can't avoid that if you cross the border. Yeah. How do you think that that changes a society to be constantly confronted with this sort of violent death in a way that's in a way that's not clearly associated with 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 war, right? Because in in terms of an evolutionary or a social past, when you have bodies in the streets, you're at war with someone and there's this clear enemy and you can point to them and you can be like, mm, well, sure. this is the narrative that we tell. But like you've lived in Mexico a lot. You've reported on all of these phenomena. Have and you've you've reported over time. So I feel like the the violent has the violence accelerated? Has it gotten worse over in, the time that you've in been Mexico? reporting? Yeah. Oh, oh, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. It, it, what's 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 clear is that it's so. It's not just orders of magnitude more violent, um, and certain parts of the country are. It's unclear whether it's actually a country. Um, in terms um, of in terms of who controls it, does the government actually able to drive along the roads and control things? Um, my feeling is in Michoacan, maybe not, and Zacatecas, not clear on that either. Um, you know, there's and and those those regions continue to shift. You never quite know which one is which. But I would say that um, that the, uh, um, the it's the brazenness of it all, and I think. You have very, you scratch just very superficially in Mexico and you will feel this. It's very serious um, stuff. And, and again, I say, we, of course, we have lots of problems. Uh, one of them is these mass shootings, of which I've covered seven in, our, in my career as a reporter in the United States. But um, uh, I, and, and these are very unsettling and I really can't, handle them anymore. I don't, I don't I'm, I'm very glad I don't work for a newspaper because I would probably still be covering them. Um, and and they, these are very serious issues. It, it, and it gets to our own permissiveness with regard to guns and, and ease of, 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 of buying guns and all that. In my opinion, it's very clearly that. And just people's inability to settle their disputes and like have conversations and just, you know, actually, like what happened to people just punching each other out, you know, like when, when you have a very, very wide, it's like drug supply. When you have drug supply that is excessive, you're going to have um, all the things that we see that associated with you. you're going to see overdoses. You're going to see these kinds of things. When you have gun supply that is excessive, you're going to see people using guns in ways that are um that are extraordinarily damaging to people, to others. And uh, that's my feeling that it's all, it's, I, I, more and more I cover this stuff, the more I think it's all about supply. You name it, you call, call it the gun story, you call it the drug story. It's all about how much 
we have available to us as human beings. Um, and that is, um, and I would say that in the United States, one part of that too is that we also have available to us, and for better or for worse, and I'm not, I'm not sure how to come down on this, but we have available to us, mightily marketed to us constantly, relentlessly, a bunch of things that are um, legal and addictive at the same time. So alcohol and sugar and um, uh, fried foods and, and, and gambling yeah. and all the other things that are part of, that are hitting our central nervous system. The main point of these things is to hit our central nervous system, our reward pathways in our brains to promote, prompt us to use those very powerful influences to go buy and spend money on their stuff. And we now have an excess of supply of all of that. Now, all that's legal and supposedly okay then. Um, I don't see a whole lot of difference, honestly. It's all about what you have supplied and in how you have allowed that to be marketed. So that's really interesting that you the say that. The marketing is the pusher man side of things. It is too. the pusher man side of things. I was thinking actually about this book that I read recently by uh, Natasha Dowshul. She wrote a book called Addiction by Design. And it was basically about, she's an anthropologist. And she, she studied gambling in Las Vegas. And she basically oh, yeah. went through the way that these machines that are the, the machines that people who live in Las Vegas prefer to play on, how they have been gradually made to be significantly more and more impossible to get out of. But there's something that struck me in her research and something that strikes me in a lot of the research that I read about addiction, which is that the people who become addicted are broken in ways that precede the addiction. And there's a really fascinating collection of studies, or I guess it's just one study by one guy. Um, have you heard of the Rat Park study? Yeah, sure. And so it's just like, that's kind of the foundation of you, you put rats in a cage and you give them cocaine and they become incredibly addicted to the point that they die. But you put rats in a highly stimulating environment where they're able to socialize and run around and be free. And they, they, they consume the drugs, but they don't become completely devastated by them. And I feel like we somehow have have created a society where there is an overwhelming desire in people to 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 obliterate themselves. Yeah, I would say that's that's true and they've, we've we've lost the connectivity that I think at one point in many parts of the country existed years ago and 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 held neighborhoods together. And now it's a very uh, isolated, very, um, how would I say, very kind of lost, kind of soulless. Um, Everyone's very uh, atomized. Yes, I would say that's true. And, 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 and then on top of that, I think there's also an enormous reservoir that I think is very important of, of, um, of trauma that people are traumatized by you name it, by whatever it is that they're traumatized by, right? Their uh, uh, abuse, neglect, rape, molestation. Um, you know, I think it's very hard to find women who are, who, are, who are seriously street addicted women who have not been raped, you know, that kind of thing. And to me, if you overlay that kind of legal addictive stuff and then you overlay intensely potent, Drugs like opioids and all the hard drugs of abuse, you're, that will, that's just a very difficult thing uh, to, to overcome. So 
there's there's this like the the level of trauma that leads someone to end up on the street is also present in smaller degrees in sort of weaving its way throughout society, right? So the trauma of getting raped is in a different bin than, say, this kind of grinding trauma of going to work in a job where you know that you will forever be the person that is, you know, working the cash register at some massive... I would say that 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 kind of thing lends itself perhaps a little bit more to legally addictive stuff like gambling and pornography and, you know, things like that. Um, I, I would say that the more serious trauma is more likely to end you in abuse of hard drugs that are very gripping and will not, are not messing around. Yeah, can, can you nowadays. sort of characterize the average hard drug user for us? Or like, how, is there an uh, average? Is there, is there, well, is there, it's very hard to do that, I think, but because a lot of it depends on the background and the opioid epidemic changed that. By making it more white collar or something? Or? Yeah, well, it became more about who had accidents, who had football injuries, who had a car, car, car accident, who, who um, broke a leg, or um, who even went into the dentist to get the wisdom tooth extracted. Um, all these folks began getting prescribed mighty amounts of these pills, and when that happened, then nobody really resists that you can there there there's easy it's it's not that hard for people who are not genetically exposed disposed to this to avoid getting addicted from say a week's worth of opioids maybe although it depends a lot but on the person but but um but a nine 90 days no every i mean most individuals are going to get addicted to 90 days worth of and and then if it's another refill for another 90 or whatever uh 60 or whatever you know, that is, and so what you began to see is, I think with the opioid epidemic, more and more Americans who, who might never have had a problem fall off a cliff. Or, as one addiction specialist told me, he thought that there was, um, that what we're seeing now is all the people who would have had alcohol problems and would have lasted 20 years before they came to an addiction specialist, now they're getting addicted and off a cliff by 23 or 25 or 30. And that made some sense to me as well. Like these are folks who didn't need to go this route. They might have had some problems, sure, but they didn't need to be this, this scary, you know, and this final because, of course, lots of people were dying. And so what you began to see, I think, with a lot of folks uh, in America is it was, it were, there were people who, who might never have been involved in this. I, I, met, I met a woman the other, uh, well, a couple months ago in eastern Tennessee whose story was, uh, she, she has had a 20-year battle with, with the most vicious addiction. I mean, it's just life-mangling, horrible thing. Anyway, she told me that she started using opioids first. And she did so when the doctor prescribed her Oxycontin, I think it was, for a foot rash. There's no chance rash. that a foot rash. Yeah, but I mean, that's the way medicine, American medicine was. Just give pills for everything, you know. And this guy was likely a quack. I don't, care, I don't see how on earth anybody decides it's okay to, to uh, uh, prescribe. But he did, according to her. So 
the next 20 years up until the time I met her, it's just worse. Oh, horrible physical problems. I mean, all kinds of things gone wrong. Had to give up her kids, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yet, as I talk with her, it became clear to me that she had no addictive personality. She did not smoke, drink, use co uh, drink coffee, gamble. She had nothing else in her life that was addictive except for she had taken, used up the entire bottle of that Oxycontin 20 years earlier. Now, that's her story. Um, I can, can't confirm it, of course. It's just one person's story. Uh, it makes some sense to me, honestly. But also, um, it's just this idea that you can, um, that we had in American medicine for a long time, that you should, can, without any risk to your patient, give, you know, remarkable amounts of opioids to that person. Well, there was some early studies that came out. There was one study. There was one paragraph. Just, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So there was one paragraph in a medical journal that was not a study. It had no data associated with it. It was like patients. It was like, it was like 20 patients. And this guy was like. No, it was. No, it was. Uh, it's in my book. Um, it was. It was in um, uh, the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, a doctor who was um, who had uh, access to a very, very large da database of patient, patient hospital records uh, and routinely asked questions of this data and had the numbers crunched by his computer guy, he told me, um, asked how many patients have been given narcotics in hospital and how many of those got addicted. So uh, the first number turns out to be um, of 300,000 patients, so 11,000 plus get these things prescribed, uh, given to them while in hospital, only while in hospital, okay? And four, uh, get addicted. And so he writes a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine saying, hey, this is an FYI. This is just, I, I noticed this from my data, you know. It's 101 words. It's, uh, it goes into the New England Journal of Medicine as a letter to the editor in um, uh, early uh, 1980, January 1980, and it comes and under the heading, addiction rare in patients in patients treated with narcotics, it doesn't say anything about hospitals. It doesn't say anything about the fact that nobody ever, none of those people ever got narcotics to take home with them. Mm -hmm. Certainly nobody ever got refills of the stuff. Very, very scrutinized, very limited amounts of, 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 of use of these drugs. And of course, he would be right. Under those conditions, you would get very little addiction. Problem was that it was then taken out of context um, by a lot of pain specialists, several in particular, who began to use this as uh, science. This is the new world. We now know that these pills are virtually non-addictive because less than 1% of people get addicted when given them. Didn't say anything about, you know, no one really read this. It was just repeated over and over and over from this one letter. A few guys got a hold of it. They began to mention it at conferences and, and, and so on. And, and all of that began to kind of be uh, spread as gospel and became the scientific underpinning for why people thought there was no, there was no risk for prescribing vast amounts of these pills to almost anybody who was a pain patient. And, and that's, that's really, 
how, you know, kind of the scientific, the so-called non-scientific, really, underpinning. It was really a letter to the editor. The guy who wrote it was absolutely correct. He was 100% correct. If you give people small amounts of opioids in hospital under very constrained and scrutinized conditions, you don't give them any to take home with, and you don't give them any refills, you will get very um, small numbers of, of those folks getting addicted, which which ought to have proved them something to them. Instead, it proved the opposite to them. They, oh, no, then it doesn't matter how many the, we, we give them. And it was like, like, can he really claim, can he claim innocence? Like, that seems like a really naive conclusion. I mean, oh, yes, I think he's absolutely right. You're absolutely, he's absolutely right. If you give people opioids under, I mean, I've. So you think he had just, do you think he just had no idea that people would be taking them home with them? No, and I talked with him later and he said, I hadn't. The letter said nothing about, oh, yeah, and by the way, give people lots of refills and take them home. And by at that point in 1980, remember, opioids were not widely used. They were very, very uh, used in very limited ways. Oh, it's remarkable. I mean, I, I remember people telling me uh, in the hospitals I worked, you had to get three doctors to sign off on every use. Every time you gave one of these drugs to somebody, triplicate. You had to get three signatures. Because well, it was a super controlled substance. It's probably IV based too. Yes, it was exactly, and probably, in fact, to some degree, too controlled. There needed to be a little wider use because they are a very effective pain um, pain uh, medicines. The problem is then it got taken by certain people. You can see this very clearly how taken completely out of context and exploded in, in its meaning when it, that, that it never had. And this doctor was oblivious. The first time he realized this letter, which he'd forgotten, Dr. Herschel Jick is his name. The first time he'd, 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 uh, he, he, he had heard of the, the way this letter was, was used, he was being subpoenaed to, to testify. He's like, what are you talking about? What? He couldn't even remember the letter. Because it was in concert, it was a letter to the editor, and he written many of those, I think, or and he'd done many, many. If you look him up, you'll see he's done many, many studies on on drugs while used in hospital, all manner of drugs, mumps, drug, you know, anti-mumps drugs, etc. All these kinds of things. No, I think he was a hundred percent correct. But if, pe if people know this by the, at this point, right? Why is this cat so hard to put back in the bag? Like, oh no, it's. I would say that it's probably being put. It is put back in the bag. Now, oh, I would say in hospitals, there's nobody uh, that nowadays that I would say that's the effect of of the last seven years. Frankly, a little bit of the effect of my book was to say that, um, you know, we got way, way off. These are magnificent drugs. Mm. OK, they are fantastic drugs. They have revolutionized pain management. They have revolutionized surgery. But. That does not mean, and they have a very, they have a very limited role. That role should not be to be in every American's medicine cabinet. And that's where we were headed since the mid 1990s when, when the drug companies and certain pain specialists and certain then medical institutions like the VA and JCO, which, uh, which uh, um, uh, credits hospitals and all that began to push and push and push and say, no, we need to really address Americans' pain. Frankly, it's, it, it was in my opinion too. Um, some people don't like to hear this, but uh, you know, I, I believe it's absolutely true that a big part of this had to do with us. We wanted 
cures. We wanted easy, convenient, quick fixes to what ailed us, and the pills were part of that. And the doctors, even doctors, I've met doctors who say, I, would just, I used to tell people, you don't need these pills. You need to lose weight. You need to rethink what you eat. Stop smoking, stop drinking. All of this under the heading of our own responsibility for our own wellness. And increasingly, those doctors began to feel pushback from us, from American health consumers. No, 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 you fix me, doctor. No, I'm not leaving here without a this or that. And after a while, everybody kind of took the end of the appointment to be when the doctor pulled out the prescription pad and wrote a prescription for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I noticed that at some point, like when I was a kid, my mom would take me to the doctor's office, you know, like you're a kid, you have like rashes or whatever. And there was always at the end of the visit, there was always a prescription pad, even for a kid. And it was never a thing of, okay, well, maybe it can be solved with exercise or some kind of other thing or it's some kind of contact allergy or whatever. It was just always like, yeah, you can put an ointment on it. And I think that that comforts people because they need to believe that medicine is able to fix them. And they want to be able to feel that medicine will be able to fix them at times beyond catastrophic accident. And I think that, that medicine has gotten used to that promise, has prom- and in fact has come through. I mean, I went through, I went through a heart attack uh, five years ago. Uh, I, a few years back, they would have cut my chest open. Instead, they put a stent in, in my leg, and they traveled it up through my body all the way to my heart, put it in the, put it in the, the artery that was blocked, opened up the artery again, Two days I was out of the hospital. Unheard of. Miraculous. I mean, truly miraculous. Acute care is just incredible in, in modern medicine. It, it really it really is. And you look, by the way, you look great. Uh, you had a heart attack. That's just absolutely shocking. I took that to heart. I mean, I, I don't eat certain things anymore. I get more exercise. I, um, I lost weight. Um, I'm still trying to very hard to lose weight. Um, um, I'm going to go swimming after this. I go swimming a lot. Um, you know, so again, it's all under the heading of accountability for our own wellness. And it's a very, very liberating thing. Once you, once you accept your own accountability for your own wellness, all of a sudden you have control and you don't have to be consuming all that crud, legal, sometimes addictive crud that that we are constantly being being bombarded with and so with my heart attack also I, I should say this writing dreamland convinced me of this too i have to say and i began i stopped drinking sodas during as i as i uh, read wrote uh, dreamland my first book on this topic because i felt that it was up to me that one of the lessons I was learning was it was up to all of us. We all were part of the solution and we should not then go to doctors and say, damn it, doc, fix me uh, for things, for things that I have really controlled. Now, some things you, you do need to go to a doctor for, and there's some, and that's what they should be there for. But stuff related to your own obesity, your own, um, what you, you know, sitting around too much, uh, smoking, drinking, uh, eating crud food, on and on and on and on. There's a whole long list of this stuff, I think. You begin to reassess that, and all of a sudden you become liberated. I felt myself feel liberated. It's so true. I mean, in any situation when anything's falling apart, whether it's your health or anything, the littlest things that you can do to really just take control of the situation are, are always get you in the right direction, always make you feel better. And like, I totally agree, man. 
So yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's the little stuff. You start with small, and that became the theme of the least of us. That we are always looking for big, mighty solutions, sexy uh, solutions for our problems. In the Rust Belt, there's still this attitude like we need a big factory to come in. The last chapter in my book on uh, uh, in the, the Least of Us goes back to the town that was the central town in the Dreamland book, uh, Portsmouth, Ohio. That's where my family's from, actually. Uh, it's a fascinating town, wonderful town, wonderful people there. Um, and um, the reason I did that was because they, that's a town that grew up on factories and, and you'd think, well, they're now they're just banking on getting another factory, you know. And no, it's all about small micro businesses, personalities colliding and connecting. It's all about physical exercise. So they have four CrossFits now. They have two outdoor cafes where people can meet. This is, by the way, the county with the worst obesity rates in all the state of Ohio. Very, very poor too, at least when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah no, it was rough. It was rough. And uh, it's becoming less so. It's still, there's still a problem. Still a lot of dope, just like any town. It's got a ton of it. And, um, but now it's got a lot of recovery centers. And a lot of people coming south into Portsmouth from the rest of Ohio to get clean. This is a town that really literally led the country into the opioid epidemic. And it's got this, this, this wonderful connectivity among personalities who are sick of it. Mm. And so it go to on Instagram, you can see their videos constantly CrossFit dreamland um, or dreamland CrossFit. I can't remember which ones, but you'll see all these videos of people CrossFitting together, lifting weights, doing this and that and the other thing. It's, it's, it's part of this new culture that is taking root. That is a, a counter narrative to the one of let's just get high all day and steal the manhole covers. And, and, but, but the key thing I want to say is that this is the crucial thing. It's all about the small step. As you said, I, I believe what you said is, as well, the small things you do towards something you haven't, you haven't exercised for a while, you go exercise and you begin to get back in that groove again. Just put it, put yourself out there once, twice, and then pretty soon you're back in that, in that groove. It's the small stuff that I have come to believe is so important and very toxic to believe in big magic answers. That's what got us into the opioid epidemic. That's one of the most optimistic uh, uh, stories. I, I haven't been back to Ohio in years and years and years and well, you know, for more than a few, you know, a few days or something to visit some people. But uh, that's really, really uh, brings a lot of hope into my heart. I went heart. back there um, in the sp- the winter. I'm sorry, of 2000, Christmas of 2018, because I had this in mind. You know, my my Dreamland book ended with this glimmer of recovery in this town, which was remarkable. I couldn't believe it, but there it was, and I wrote it. 30 pages, the ending to the book. And um, then I thought I was writing The Least of Us. I thought, I got to go back there and just see. And so I went back there for Christmas of 2018, where the town had put in a temporary skating rink. And so all these people come out of their houses now for about 20 days on either side of Christmas, you know, um, to skate. Now, and and all the kids are falling on their butts. And I will say this, because of economic devastation of that town, people don't know how to ice skate anymore. They used to, when there was 
double the population, the town would spray water on this one park. It would freeze up and everyone would skate in the park. And every, a lot of people knew how to skate back then, but they don't anymore. No, very few people really knew how to skate. I watched an entire town falling on their butts, but it's fine. That's fine. And they had, it was just wonderful thing of the town just kind of coming together and doing this together, a town that had been atomized, fragmented by economic devastation, then a, just a locust swarm of dope uh, that, that really affected and infected and, 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 and crushed at least one generation, maybe like part of two, really. I think that, they, that being able to unite against it actually brought them together. Like what kind of solutions could we look for, for against that atomization in the rest of America? Do you have any sense or have you? I think that this town has, it's been, the, the, the movement forward has been built on certain personalities, people finding each other. And for the first time, so now there's these two cafes, they're outdoor cafes where people can actually come and sit down and get together. First time since the pool, the pool used to do that. The dream, the pool called Dreamland, which is why I call my book Dreamland. Um, used to be that, used to be the town square, used to be the town plaza, right? You'd get everybody come together and, and the, the radio station knew that all its listeners were at the town, were at the pool. And so they'd put these every half hour, they'd put a little jingle, said time to turn so you won't burn because they knew that all these people, then all these people would turn over and, you know, you just see all these people on there deciding to turn over, right? And um, and every I, I remember when I first came onto this, I was writing about the opioid epidemic, and I was spending more time than I had planned in Portsmouth. I thought I'd go there twice. I was on my third or fourth trip by then, and I put up on this Facebook site, you know you're in from Portsmouth if dot, dot, dot. I got membership to that. And I said, hey, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you all, I heard about this swimming pool called Dreamland, which, by the way, was about the size of a football field. Okay, enormous. You can see pictures of it. Um, just an enormous swimming pool. And as I said, the center of town life, which I really didn't understand until I put this post up. And for three days, for three days straight, people wrote in their memories of the Dreamland pool. Oh, I kissed my first girl. Oh, you know, the, the, the French fries. Oh, the smell of copper tone. Oh, the, the, it went on and on and on. I copied it all off, put it in a separate file because I didn't want to miss any of it. I didn't want them to take it down or anything. And, but it, it made me feel like this is what the town had been like before the factories closed, before half the town left, before they couldn't keep the pool open, dug it up, and now that place where the pool is, it's almost a stand-in for what we've done to community in this, in this country. That, that, that place is a um, big asphalt strip mall. That's, what used, that's where Dreamland Pool used to be. Now, there still is a kind of an administrative building where they've put a gym and they have um, CrossFit Dreamland in that, in that building kind of back set off the street a good ways. But um, the place itself is a depressing, depressing place because you remember, you know, if you know the history, you know what used to be there. That left the town vulnerable. At that point, there was no place where people could meet except 
really Walmart took the place of Dreamland. That's a place where you'd see people. Yeah, I was going to say my uh, my grandma always used to when I was a kid, she'd always hang out. She'd meet her friends on Sundays at McDonald's. Actually, actually, that was like her big thing. Like she'd get dressed up and like go out to McDonald's every week. But that was but that's the that's the whole point. I mean, the, there used to be these places where people could get together. Then pretty soon, you know, crime begins to increase. People go indoors. People are afraid of being outdoors. It used to be you'd be outdoors um, uh, until at least um, the streetlights came on. Sometimes even later, you know, particularly in good weather and winter and I mean, in summer and fall and so on, spring. But um, it, it was just a, a story of, of how um, one town had just been shredded. And I think that that's what's gone on in, in many parts of the country, even in well-to-do suburbs and so on. You still see that kind of atomization, no sidewalks, people don't know each other, that kind of thing. And I think all of that is kind of at the root. I think it's even worse than well-to-do suburbs, personally. I think it's much worse, yeah. Like, I, I've, every time that I've been... I mean, I've lived in a lot of n- not particularly wealthy areas, and I feel like any time that I live in a not wealthy area, there's people are actually somehow connecting to each other. Like, you'll see... There's We've an apartment. visited some hilarious wealthy neighborhoods recently. I mean, we have friends who live in some places that are just really funny, and then we live out here in the middle of rural America, and... Everybody's just, you know, super down to earth. Everybody wants to know who everybody else is. And like you'll walk down the street and people will stop you and they'll just be like, oh, you're new, aren't you? And you talk to them. But you you go to a fancy neighborhood and everybody's so... You won't even see people for the Not part. only do you not see people, but the ones that you do. Like, I have never been cussed out worse on a road than I was one time in this little place in California called Bolinas where I cannot even imagine how expensive the houses are because it's, you know, Marin County, super isolated. I stopped downtown because <laughs> I, I was looking at the general store. It's this like very cute general store. It's this totally empty street. And there's a guy in a Mercedes behind me and he's just losing his mind. And then he pulls up next to me and he cusses me out and he pulls away. And it's never happened to me. But this is like one of the wealthiest zip codes in California. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that we... we this is a that's what had struck me when I was writing Dreamland that this was a problem that people kept on saying it's all about Appalachia, it's about the Rust Belt, it's about economic devastation, is what they kept saying. And there's certainly that part of it, there's no doubt. But um, by the time I was working on it, you had rampant opioid addiction in Orange County, California, and some of the suburbs of Indianapolis and Charlotte, and you know, places that were doing really, really well. And so it did not seem to me. You could explain what was going on by a story of economic devastation, as much as that might be part of the story. Uh, it, it had more to do, uh, my feeling really is that it had more to do to what we, with what we've done to shred community and what we have done um, to just isolate ourselves. We began to believe, I think as a culture, and I do believe we are almost, we may be, let me put it this way, we may be unique in the world. Um, for this, and that is that we began to say that, that what has held us together as a species for millennia, for eons, whatever, no longer applied to us, that we don't need those connections because those connections are messy too, right? They're, they're you know, you don't like people that you have to hang out with. You don't vote like them. You don't believe like them. You don't, uh, 
you know, they, you know they've, 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 uh, their dog barks or what, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's all kinds of reasons why you don't get, might not get along with them. And in the last 40 years, we, I believe, have gotten away from that. We've decided we are an exception. And so, and, and we have the prosperity, I think crucial all this, we have the prosperity to be able to live alone without needing people in the way people have always needed each other going back again, millennia, um, and millennia. Um, so it, to me, it, it seems like part of why this one reason, there's many, but why, one reason why this happened in the United States is because we began to believe that we were, didn't need this most powerful, necessary force that we evolved to, again, not just prize, but understand the, the necessity of which is the need. Evolutionary speaking, our, our brain needs this to be with other people. We found this during the, the, the pandemic, I think. But we have been kind of gradually eroding, corroding all those ways in which we came together as a country. My feeling is for for 40 years, and we may be, uh, again, I don't know, but but I, I'm betting that we may be unique in that, that no other country has done as, as much to corrode and erode when, the, the connectivity that, that we've had. When you say that we've done, like, no other country has done this or done that, like, what do you mean exactly, like, do, that, that we're doing things actively? Or is this just a product of us seeking infinite growth? Like, if we seek as our, if, if, our, if we have this mono value structure, which is like, you must grow your business, you must grow, like, the corporation must grow, the stock, the shareholder returns must grow. And if that's, like, the primary focus of our civilization, how could anything else happen? No, that's that's a very good point, and I, you may be right about that. I don't. I, it's hard for me to to say that th this is a complicated thing, and I think many books on sociology have been written on this very, 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 very topic. I will say it seems to me that at certain points we have um, not funded or defunded or or something things that bring us together. Things that bring us together. The swimming pool is one of those. Uh, you could understand the city or the, 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 the actually it's a private, really it was a private pool, although it's basically public, um, why they would close that because they couldn't afford it anymore. Nobody in town, they, they weren't getting, and so they had these enormous repair bills and no one can, can, can funding it. So they had to close it. On the other hand, there's, there has to be more than just this throwing up your hands at whatever the free market has kind of decided is valued and say, oh, well, we can't do anything about that. It's almost like the free market as God, as religion. And I think that that's a huge, huge mistake, that, that there are lots of things we can do. Uh, there's lots of things we can do as a, as a community. It's hard to put a price on those things too, right? It's hard to factor them into the economic equations of things. No, exactly right. And that's, a, that's part of the problem. And, and I would say that, that looking around, I think you can see that, that Portsmouth paid an enormous price for closing that swimming pool. Now, it, it was still tough. I mean, to be alive at that time, I was not in, in a city council during that time. I was not uh, in charge of that swimming pool at that time. And I don't want to be second guessing Monday morning quarterbacking now 40 years later, but um, 30 years later, whatever. But but it, it, it does seem to me that generally speaking, that we have a, a kind of a prosperity that allows us to believe erroneously that we are can make it on our own it plays into our own um american both mythology and reality that you have a, a better chance 
of on your own, uh, with your own labor, with your own effort, moving beyond where you were born. Um, And I lived in Mexico and I know that that's true. It's also a bit of a mythology, but nevertheless, it's that combination that kind of um, uh, uh, comes together to, to tell us that we are bootstrapping it, even though all around us are things that other people have built for us. Uh, services that other people provide for us. There's this, but still, there's this attitude like you know we don't really need other other folks that much. You know what I mean? It's like uh, it's not really that important. And um, it just seemed to me that we just kind of gradually. This was not a revolution. This was a broad, slow evolution towards isolation. It seems to me, and it's been going on for some time in this country. Part of it is this this um, blind faith in the free market that I think is very damaging. Um, not that there should be a government controlled economy. It's that it's that just because the free market puts a value on, on this or that, or puts no value on that doesn't mean there is no value. It doesn't mean they don't, they don't, you won't face a massive price for turning your back on it as, as, as the dreamland pool example showed well in in an ideal world i mean ideally even if you read like the early writings of this country and the people who designed it in the first place i i don't know that they would be pleased with the idea that the sole motivator of the government would be economic i I think that they they would have i mean obviously they had religion at the time first of all we don't have religion on the same scale that we used to and there's no there's not really been an adequate replacement for I mean, church was the place where people got together every week. Let's be honest. That's where you talked about things that didn't have to do with money. And uh, there's no, there's no (laughs) real driver anymore. Right. So, you know, yeah, because everything has become an economic aspect. Because I was even thinking about the way that after everything has collapsed, it gives people the opportunity to come together. And it gives people the opportunity to start working on something. But like you said... Yeah, like how do we find a place where we can talk about stuff other than business? But I, my, my question is this. How do you recover a broken community in a way that doesn't talk about business also? But it, it seems to me that, that that's, that's why um, I put in uh, this last chapter on Portsmouth in The Least of Us, uh, the very last chapter of the book, because it does seem to me that it's that small connectivity that it leads people out of this morass. It's not big answers. Again, we're getting back to that whole idea of uh, people needing big, uh, small answers, small connectivity, small steps. That's, I think, where you get to economic growth that does not have unintended consequences, maybe. Where you get a more solid social slash economic slash cultural development rather than growth. There's a big difference between growth. I found this in Mexico. Big, big difference between growth and development. Most Mexican towns have growth. They don't have any, they have very little development. And you just don't get the kinds of things that make life apart from business worth living. Mm. And and to me, it feels like uh, the story behind what's going on now in Portsmouth is fascinating because it's more, it's as much about development as it is about growth. In fact, the growth is very small. It's a bunch of small things, small micro uh, enterprises, micro capitalism, people starting businesses with three employees, not 300. You know what I mean? So all, all of that is, is my feeling, kind of my 
overarching idea. It all gets down to the details, of course, but the overarching idea is the more we focus on making those kinds of connections and supporting those kinds of connections with our money, with our, with our dropping by and buying coffee and say, hey, thanks, really appreciate what you're doing here. That kind of thing, those kind, that kind of support is intentional, goes out of the way to be intentional and understands that, yeah, I probably could get a cheaper cup of coffee at McDonald's. It's probably by, by a, a third the price, literally, or fourth the price. And yet I prefer to go and spend four bucks on a cup of coffee at the, at the, at the, uh, at the open air, um, uh, the, the independent, by the way, also both of these cafes now that they have their independent, the independent coffee shop, instead of just going to a McDonald's, you know, utilitarian would say, no, just go to McDonald's, right? And uh, the, the, but there's a larger benefit and a lower, therefore, price that you're paying. I love the idea that we just pay for our, we basically just vote with our dollars, essentially. I love like taking control of that and not even with our dollars, but with our interactions that we choose to have with the, the you know, with whether or not we say hi to people and what, how much we really invite that local community to grow everywhere we go. I, I love the empowering aspect of that. And it's very intentional. What I think is very important is you have to be intentional about it. You have to say, I'm going to shop here. Why? Because the person who owns this store yeah. also funds or contributes money to the junior high um, uh, theater group or the little league or the library. You know, it's I could shop at Walmart, but Walmart's going to take that money and put it somewhere else that's far from my town. Mm. Oh, it's interesting thinking about it like a local localism tax, right? Like you pay $4, not necessarily just because you want to support the local business and you want to give it to the business person, but because the business person collects that money and then is, is a business person and is able to invest it and is able to put it to work inside the community. Hires more local people and that money also then, one of the things that goes into local local cultural and sports things like one of the th I had this very interesting conversation I'm not even sure she knew how it was important it was to me with a, a woman who were had retired but was in banking for many many years and she had watched as the community banks had been just withered now there still exists some of them but it clearly not to the degree they once did and she said you know that people don't understand what you lose when you lose a community bank first of all you lose a banker who knows everybody by name or many people by name, who goes to church, who goes to the Friday night football games, who's at the Chamber of Commerce meeting and the Rotary meeting and all that stuff. That person is invested in that town in a way that you don't get from chain, com, com, uh, chain store banks, basically. And uh, the other thing is that those banks, the community banks, are the ones that fund the small sports, cultural stuff that the big banks won't touch. They probably are unaware of it. The, but they'll they'll support those small community banks will fund the local theater group, right? Those small local banks will fund the um, the, uh, the the little league and so on. Whereas the the big banks, all they want to be part of is putting their names on a opera hall or a children's uh, you know zoo or you know something like that where they can get a lot of benefit from it the smaller the banks the the more locally oriented the banks the more that they're going to be funding 
and making proper, proper business decisions too about what money to loan on top of that. And because they know the people better. That may, may mean that some people don't get a loan because they know them real well. And it may be, mean that other people do get a loan, even though they probably on, on paper don't deserve one because the people know them real well. And so all of that is what we've done. That's part of our community shredding that's gone on, frankly, in the last 40 years, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, do you know the Mondragon Corporation? I, I don't think I do, no. So the Mondragon Corporation is one of my favorite examples of this community success story. It was uh, started by uh, Jose Arzmendiera in the aftermath of World War II when the fascists had taken over Spain. He was a Jesuit priest who was teaching in a small town in Basque country. And he was kind of a communist. And there's no other way to say that. And he basically taught the kids where he was like, look, if you want to make it in this world, you have to be the ones that own the production. And so they figured out how to start building stuff. I think that they were building like small machine parts. And eventually... Communist in the sense of like, we can all work together and make this happen. Not in the sense of like totalitarian Stalinism. (laughs) Yeah, like no, no purges, no purges involved here. So basically, uh, and correct me if I'm getting any of the details wrong. It's been a while since I studied this, but essentially (laughs) they built a town where the workers own everything. They own the banking structure, a hospital, a a university, Like it's it's quite an like worker ownership in general is a really fascinating concept that America could really stand to educate themselves about. I mean, there's some crazy success stories. I I, I just think it all gets back to my feeling is less communism than localism for forging ahead by supporting people who are not going to take that money and take it and give it to shareholders in another part of the country or whatever. That's exactly what this is. And that's exactly what worker ownership is. No shareholders are allowed to own any part of the business. The only shareholders are the workers. That's it. Once you leave the, once you stop working for the place, you're not a shareholder anymore. And so they're, they're not capable of polluting their own towns and making these terrible decisions that corporate structures are capable of making because it's in their backyard at all times. Every decision directly affects them. And they've been, you know, a lot of these companies have been wildly profitable. I mean, Mondragon is the third largest corporation in Spain to this day. They made $15 billion in, I think, 2015. Like, this is a hugely powerful, incredibly... It's not a communist idea. Yeah, it's not. Like, they're super, super... It's it's the yeah. wrong thing to say. Like they're super capitalist, but they found a way to make it compassionate yeah, capitalism capitalist that supports local community to an immense degree. And yeah. they're bound together culturally. I've seen it in other places and I just really um, uh, like to support that. I think that that and the, you, you must make an intentional choice to do that um, because there are always going to probably be on the surface cheaper ways of getting what you want. And you have to say, but that comes with a tax. And the tax is that they're not supporting the community, that pretty soon pretty, you're gonna get overrun by dope, pretty soon you're gonna be overrun by crime, pretty soon dope dealers are gonna see your town as like this perfect place to come flood, flood your streets with their evil top poison. You know, all of that comes when you decide, I can get something cheaper somewhere else. And it doesn't matter if I support my uh, mom and pop, it doesn't matter if I don't support my mom and pop, that yes, is going to be twice as expensive, maybe more so than, 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 than say, the, uh, uh, the Walmart outside of town. There's no doubt about that. There's simply no doubt about that. 
but it's this way of saying, I want to do everything I can because I understand the tax that I'm paying. And then you're less like, you're less dependent on these gods then at that point too, right? It's like, there's not these like nebulous entities just like shadowing over your life then. Cause you're like, whatever, like, I don't really care what Walmart does or what, you know, the big government does or whatever it is, because I'm actually taking control of my life right here, right now. I just, I think it's, well, my feeling is, I'm not sure other people would say this, but my feeling is that y- you can connect all that up to kind of the what got us into the opioid epidemic. This um, this blind faith in in big business, uh, believing whatever um, uh, uh, drug companies tell you, understanding uh, or uh, instead instead of understanding that my own wellness is a part of my in my decision, you know. And that also when I am in a position where I do need those products that they sell and we all will be, and I don't think those are bad products, it's just how you market them and how you use them, that when I am in that position, I will have the wherewithal and the knowledge to say, no, I'm going to use these for a bit because they're helpful. On the other hand, I'm going to be really careful about this. I'm not going to be just kind of blindly walking into a situation where I believe stuff and had more families in America kind of been like been there in that way, uh, you know, we would not have had this. This opioid epidemic would have been not, I don't think would have happened really. Can I, can I ask you about how it's become an underground phenomena at this point? Like how, you'd mentioned that the hospitals have made amends and that it's not, there aren't pills being widespread distributed at this point, but it seems like there's still a booming underground economy coming up from Mexico with this. Who who is that client base? Are they holdovers that have been grandfathered in from the medical structure? Because you mentioned that the that there was this huge explosion of opportunity when the white collar people got introduced to these drugs. Is that if with that uh, source cut off, at least from the hospital side, who no, are they I preying mean, I think, on? Yeah. I think they began to get into this business once they saw that we were creating a brand new market of opioid addicted customers all across the country. And who's their market and now? To see that those people were then switching, could would switch to very cheap, very potent heroin, and that's what they began to pr- promote, push heroin, and that's another part of the Dreamland book. How, but, how but, but, but with that, but with that group gone, you're saying that we cut that that cat got put back in the bag, right? That that. Well, n- yes and no. Um, what began to happen was that that um, as that was developing. The Mexican trafficking world began to figure out that their most potent, profitable by quite a bit, their most potent and profitable option was not to make plant-based drugs, not to grow drugs, principally in this case, the opium poppy, but instead to make stuff chemically, synthetically with nothing but chemicals involved. And along the way, tell the story in The Least of Us, of how the Sinaloa drug cartel stumbled really on the idea that on fentanyl, they had no idea what fentanyl was until about 2006. And they hired this guy, this chemist to make ephedrine for them. Now, ephedrine is a chemical you use to make methamphetamine. And they were afraid that the Mexican government was going to curtail importations of ephedrine. So they wanted to develop other sources. This guy's job was to do that. And instead, instead of doing that, what he did was he makes Fentanyl, and they get mad 
And he says, no, time out, time out. You don't understand. This is the most profitable, potent and profitable drug you will ever encounter. You should be thanking me. You should be on your knees thanking me right now. I'm not sure he said that exactly, but that was kind of his attitude. That was kind of his attitude, right? And that's when the lights go on, bang, in the Sinaloa drug world. It's like, oh, my God, there's, this, there's a synthetic. We know about synthetic methamphetamine, and we can make it, and, and that's great, and we've been making a lot of money. Uh, and now I didn't, we did not know there was a synthetic form of essentially heroin. And, and that begins the transition. It takes a while. It's a long story, but basically it begins the transition of the, meta, the, 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 um, the, um, the Mexican trafficking world away from almost fully now away from plant-based drugs. I think marijuana is really dropping off. Poppy growing has really collapsed. Cocaine they still get from the Colombians. That's still important. But did they have like a waiting consumer base for that already? That's what I'm trying to understand. Like if sure, the, you, have, yeah. you have all these opioid users up in the United States who are now just remember this. Mm, is they've lost their source. Essentially, they're like, this oh, we can't. Not a demand it. story. Hey, this is a supply story. They're saying we'll give them. We'll push them. It's even that makes it sound too intentional. It's like there's this. It's this vast free market down in Mexico. That's what's happening. People are saying, hey, you can make this stuff real cheap. And once you start selling it, people, some people will die, as we've seen. A lot of people will die. But we don't care about that. And number two, uh, eventually, a lot of folks will get addicted. And when they get addicted, they need to use fentanyl four or five times a day. Heroin, they need to use once or twice. A couple of grams is a pretty decent heroin addiction. And now you've got... Uh, people who are addicted to fentanyl, now you need to use four, five, six grams of fentanyl a day. And so all of a sudden you get a, um, a far more eager customer, far more regular and, and profitable customer. And it's much cheaper than heroin to make on top of that. And so you get this kind of transition, but they started seeing, and now you're seeing it um, in, out of Mexico by the millions now uh, included in counterfeit pills that look like Percocets and Xanax bars and oxycodone generic 30 milligrams, et cetera, et cetera. There's a long list of things that they've now, they look legit and they are just nothing but fentanyl because they can make fentanyl so big, so, uh, so easily. And the reason they can do that is the crucial part of this whole story is that they control the shipping ports on the Pacific coast, certainly, where they get in chemicals from the world, principally China, also to some degree, I think it uh, uh, sounds like uh, India is becoming a major player in all this too, but they can get all it's just staggering quantities of these drugs. And the consumer base isn't able to get it from the hospitals anymore, if what you're saying is correct. They don't need to get it in the hospitals. No, I mean, the, the hospitals are, are most in the United States, you've seen a dramatic cutback in what in prescribing practices, sometimes to the detriment of their patients, in my opinion. There's some people who, once they're addicted to this stuff, they're 80 year old, they're, they're, you know, they're in their 70s and they have arthritis. There's really no, no threat. It's really, I think it's better just to, with constant tending from a doctor, to leave that person on that. The, the problem is now we're just saying, oh, no, opioids, no. And so we got to cut back dramatically all the other way. And my feeling is there needs to be some kind of place in the middle. But the, it's like a sh it sounds like an economic shunting almost like you're like just you're just diverting the, the all of the need. You know, there's a demand that's there and people are just going to the underground now. It, 
Um, a little bit of that, but a lot of times it's, it's creating demand. So the, uh, fentanyl helps create demand. Remember, fentanyl is now being um, uh, included in, in cocaine, in methamphetamine, and to some degree in, in marijuana and vapes and so on. Those are people really? uh, who, oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's like there's no drug on the street that you can safely take anymore. We, are, we, have, reached, we have reached the very end of the final extension, the final extreme of the, the um, uh, what do you call it? The um, uh, recreation, era of recreational drug use. There's no such thing anymore. People, every, every time you use a drug, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, Russian roulette. Basically, and is the and is the point of including it in all of these street drugs in order to make them individually much more addictive? Yes, and that's what Correct. you mean about so driving you demand. A, you get a you get a, a a customer who now has to buy from you every single day, right? and for Instead all substances, not just because I mean, like if with heroin, it was it was something that was like particular to heroin, but it's like if you buy. If you if you buy some quantity of marijuana, or you buy some quantity of Xanax, like that would normally last you for a while. But if it's all fentanyl, then you're basically dead in the. And 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 particular well, a couple of things. So you know, yeah, it's cocaine. You put it in there. The cocaine has been laced with fentanyl now for about six, seven years. I I don't know how anybody in their right mind does any more any cocaine anymore in America. It's it's just clearly going to kill you. I mean, just remarkable how much of the cocaine includes fentanyl now um and then uh with the pills the pills look the same but they're not they they look legit but they are are counterfeit they're coming up from mexico by the millions i mean really enormous quantities millions and millions of these is this an argument for legalization then because it seems like at least where we live on the west coast uh like cannabis is legal at least right you can find out when you go to buy the cannabis what farm it came from whether it's organic i mean you can like you could literally have a capitalist wet dream yeah it, it might be but you know um here's the issue and i think it gets back to some of the earlier stuff we're talking about um um first of all this whole story starts with legal drugs you don't get to the story that we have now without opioid prescription narcotic painkillers creating all this. So it starts with we, legal drugs, but no con, no talk about addiction, right? Because it's like there's a difference between having drugs and being like, you can't get addicted to these drugs, kid. Take as many as you want versus being like, hey, you can have access to these drugs. We're not going to throw you in jail, but we acknowledge that these drugs are very, very addictive. These are the off-ramps to getting off of them. These are the incentives, right? Sure. right? My feeling is this on, on drug addiction, on drug, legalized drugs in America, and, um, and that is that we do not have the business, social culture, societal culture, economic culture, uh, we do not have the appetite for the kind of regulation of a drug that would be required to safely legalize it. And you're seeing that with marijuana now very clearly, I think. Marijuana um, might well need to be legalized. But what I th- I'm absolutely positive of is that marijuana, which grows very well under the sun, absolutely should not be legalized for commercial sale when it's grown indoors with the carbon footprint uh, in a time of, 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 uh, of, um, uh, of climate change, where there's absolutely no way that should happen. 
Or um, in areas where, where there's can... lots of drought. I mean, that that tends to be the case with with a lot of agriculture in the United States, right? Which is like we what grow I'm saying things. is that marijuana grows very well. You have to make choices. Yeah, See, yeah, here's yeah. the thing: everyone says, "Well, there's all these reasons why you why you should grow it indoors." Well, yeah, this and that. I'm saying it doesn't matter in the climate of time of climate change. The amount of carbon footprint that one marijuana plant has is catastrophic. Multiplied by millions. It's just an insane idea, but we are obeying. It's the opposite outdoors, though. That's interesting. I'm sorry? I mean, it's a great carbon scrubber outside, actually. I mean, I'm not sure if it is or not, but it certainly doesn't, would not have the the uh, the industrial footprint. footprint right because i mean like the, and when we talk about the industrial footprint it's the electricity for the grow houses it the is the whatever, yeah. it, it just four month four, four month gestation period you have 24 hour um, 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 air circulation and lighting you have too. 16 hours of lights yeah. But see, this is a perfect example. We do not stand up to business interests when they propose insane ideas. And one of them is, let's grow marijuana indoors and make that legal. That is, should never be legal. Yeah, just grow your own weed, people. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Like, well, it's not legal in a lot of places. Oh, well, that's the problem, I guess. I mean, so that's my feeling. Make it hyper local. You still can't do that. Yeah. Even now, we should be able to say, there's no legal plant that can be grown in. And we should never make that legal. Why? Because we're in the middle of an existential threat called called climate change. And this this is adding to it in ways that are completely unnecessary, but make a lot of money for a few folks. You know, so, oh, oh well, that, that, no, that's fine. You know, don't want to mess with the free market. Even even folks from the marijuana world are like, oh, no, no, don't want to mess with the free market. Well, I thought you guys... You know, on other things you do, but just on this, no, I just think it's insane. It's it, it shows, but it shows you my larger point, which is that we have in this country the almost preternatural inability to stand up and say, "I don't care what the free market's saying. This is not going to happen. We're not going to do this, 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 and this. We're going to put all these controls in it. We're not going to use one dime of all that supposed tax money that we're going to get, which I." kind of doubt, but let's just say that there's some um, in on issues that do not have specifically to do with marijuana and building the infrastructure for inspection and all that stuff. No, now all of a sudden as we need to use marijuana for homeless things and this and that and the other. I'm like, no, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the inability of Americans to come down with really serious regulations on what the, and also provide money for the kind exactly the kind of um, of uh, campaign that ought to go along with every drug, which is this, we're providing this legally to you, but the last thing you should be doing is using this drug. You know, and also we just simply will not, cannot tell growers that 30% THC marijuana is not okay to grow legally. You cannot, that's insane. It's interesting because people can make these vote. People can vote with their dollar once again, right? Like everybody out there who's a, a cannabis user, could, you could, you guys could, you could, you could buy outdoor weed if you want but to. But people don't want it. it. Like, and this comes back to the point of the thirty percent THC because people want to be obliterated. 
like mm. a joint that like one of those vape pens that's like 97% THC or something. There's no, the, the recreational purpose of that is to erase yourself from the face of the earth as effectively <laughs> as possible. Well, we're, yeah, working in a cubicle sucks. I mean. well, it does. And that's the, and that's the thing, but it's like, there is this, there is this hunger for something that will block out the sun. And that's why people can't regulate it because what they want with their dollars is they want the thing that is not great. And that, that's what they vote for, right? Because people aren't rational, they're emotional, they follow their addictions, they Why follow their sadness. Why are people trying to obliterate themselves in the first place, you know? Because they, they live these lives that are inescapable. Like, this kind of comes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that you live a life, you know, we we live a life that's, that's, that's glorious. We spend our time talking to interesting people, and we have a podcast, and we write, and we, we encounter the world. And then somebody else has no way out of the fact that they have obligations, they have kids, they have a dead-end job, and there's no path that, there's no economic path that's offered to them, like this sort of small localist world that you're talking about, right? You can't go down the street and find somebody and be like, hey, why don't we start a business venture? Yeah, you know, I, I completely, I think that that's part of it. I think, and, 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 it's, and it's telling us, what, what, what they're saying by that was, I don't care what the effects on climate change are. I just want to get obliterated. And to me, this is part of what I say, why I say what I said about Americans having really the capacity for the kind of regulation and appetite, capacity and appetite for the kind of regulation that would be required to safely, sanely legalize drugs in an adult manner. Okay, it's, we do not have it. I don't think, I think we, in fact, in some ways, we, I'm not sure we're alone in that, but certainly I think other countries might be able to do it. We, we do not have that capability. And the marijuana is, marijuana is showing us that as we, in real time. It's showing us, don't you, in Colorado, you can't possibly propose reducing the potency to 7% THC. You would never, it would be politically, political suicide. Do you think that reducing the potency of alcohol has had a big effect? I think alcohol has shown us what you need to do. Alcohol has three stages. Pre-prohibition, which resembles more like marijuana today, in my opinion, where nothing, there was very little control and almost not, you know, kids were drinking. Uh, you didn't really know what you were drinking. All the kind of, then prohibition, nothing was allowed. And then all of this kind of crazy stuff gets made and the mafias get their money and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 um, and along the way, you get this bathtub hooch that turns you kind of like jerky and you half blind and all that. And with marijuana, we have, um, we're still in this, we went through this illegal phase. We went prohibition. Now we're in the pre-prohibition alcohol version of pot where almost anything's okay and it's government sanctioned too. And so you can't really go to jail for it anymore, even though you're doing it. And even though the stuff is horribly horribly uh, potent and even though we're selling as if it's okay 30 40 percent thc pot 90 percent vapes all that kind of stuff even though all of that stuff grew up in prohibition we never would have thought with alcohol yeah you know what let's make bathtub hooch 
put it on sale in in our liquor stores in our in our uh, and, and 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 wherever you know in our bars and whatever never ever we regulated that very heavily we have local boards that do this we have state boards that do this we have some places that are dry um you, you know it's a very heavily regulated market and we got used to that and we got used to you know three percent five percent whatever and then there's some harder alcohol that's not that's more potent but it's it's it, you know it, it it seems to me like we are going um prohibition no prohibition at all because politically it's suicide and that's what i'm talking about in america we just do not have the ability the appetite the capacity for regulating drugs in a way that makes sense and also i would say this we do we cannot stop an economic interest we just find it in our uh, uh, not in our nature to stop an economic interest that is bent on making money taking the inch that you give them and make turning it into a mile uh that's what happened with the opioid problem that's what's happening with marijuana Right that's now, that's right. at the heart of everything too. That there's an economic yeah. interest that's at odds with spiritual interests, whatever you want to call it, psychological, motivational, spiritual. I haven't Community. found a better word than that. Yeah. But uh, that's where we are. It, it's I couldn't I couldn't agree I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I, th I think it's so. That is the point. As soon as something somebody's making money doing something, well, oh oh okay, oh <laughs> well, you're good then. Well, well okay, yeah. you're making you're making money by growing marijuana indoors. Yeah. I mean, are, have you lost your mind? We well, I mean, like we're moving towards like... industrial indoor agriculture. Like I think that Bezos is investing heavily in vertical farming yeah, and all these things. It does, marijuana doesn't need it. Marijuana yeah. doesn't need it. The people who make arguments for it are all vested in with economically invested in this in this world. Marijuana grows beautifully in the sun. Mm. Beautifully. Wonderfully. It just doesn't get to 40% THC, I think, or something like that. What is it about the 40% yeah. THC? Like, I mean, I, I have my own, I have my own impressions, but like, what is your, what is your case against 40% THC? That we don't, we, 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 we need to, I would say that we need to be humble, right? 40% THC pot is the same as bathtub hooch. It has that kind of unknowable, crazy effect on the brain. You're seeing this now with with in ERs and stuff, people coming in with and, and of course, then it's not just that. Of course, it's the products that grow from it. You know, we were supposedly all upset when Joe Camel marketed cigarettes to kids. Now we have gummy bears and brownies and cookies with marijuana in them. I mean, how is that any different? Mm. I don't find it any different, honestly. And so all of this. It seems to me that when you legalize a drug and you don't have a track record of doing it well or you haven't been doing it for a long time, you need to be humble, cautious. You need to take your time. Well, we have had the, op the opposite has been true of marijuana, just rushing into it wild. Un and, and remember what the, what the lesson of the opioid epidemic was. Again, opioid epidemic is not a, 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 a class on why we should legalize drugs. It begins with legalized drugs, right? Um, it, 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 the, the, the opioid epidemic's main lesson, I, one of them anyway, was beware. Beware what highly potent, legal drug you make widely available for use all across the country with outlandish claims about its risk-free nature. Have you ever used opioids? All of those. Excuse me? Have you ever used opioids? 
I have not. Well, I mean, I've been given them um, for pain, sure. Mm. But but use them in a recreational way? No, I don't yeah, yeah. do that. I mean, cannabis doesn't kill people straight up. That's like a little bit of a different uh, yeah, apples to oranges that, situation. That we're finding that, that that might be true, but that doesn't mean it's harmless. Gotcha, and it doesn't gotcha. mean that it's, it's, and it is now, in my opinion, unnecessarily harmless by being made so I mean, harmful. It, it, it so seems like the main harm is like this spiritual element, though, too, where you're just like, it's it's really just like equipping people to obliterate their existence and deal with things that they probably and should be fixed. And it's creating an enormous new economic concentration of interests known as big pot. Yeah. I mean, and the pharmaceutical is, companies are going to move into that as well. And that's going to become basically... I'm not sure about pharmaceutical. I think the tobacco companies will, may well do that. Mm. I mean, we'll see. We're, we're, we're watching this take place in real time, aren't we? I, I mean, don't know. I don't the, know what's going to happen. The it's pharma companies... I'm sorry? The pharma companies, I, so what I've heard from people that were looking for land in the Pacific Northwest is that they found themselves in competition with uh, pharmaceutical companies that were buying up pot farms. And that makes sense to me because if you are going to be marketing these isolated cannabinoids because they help with this or they help with that, then, I mean, the same way that I think a lot of heroin is still derived from poppies, you're probably going to start by deriving whatever compounds you need from the plants themselves. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's possible. All, all I'm saying is that we have rushed into this mm -hmm. without the proper caution or humility, in my opinion. And without, I, mean, I really do believe that we are just simply incapable as a culture. Yeah. of regulating to the degree that needs to be that, that a new legal drug needs to be regulated particularly early on. Um, so do you have any optimism about this? Like do you do you it look seems like it comes right back to the us I, I, regu us it regulating it. I don't. But what uh, about what I about don't. the localism? Do you take that stance too? Like why <laughs> why should we depend on this big superstructure of the government to come regulate our behavior at at, at the level of what sort of plants we're putting in our body? Like, why can't we just, Well, you know. that sounds good until, until, until it becomes, as it in American culture seems always to become part of like some larger thing that becomes a more sinister structure than the one you're describing. I mean, I mean, yes, there's the libertarian argument. And, you know, my feeling is understanding the neuroscience of drug addiction undermines the, the libertarian argument completely. And now, not, in, not entirely. And there are certain things that, yes, we need to have the freedom to do. And, and, and marijuana may well be one of those. I just think I would want to, to see us take things slowly, carefully, put in, in stops so that we are not creating or to the, to the degree that we can, we help smaller versions of, of, of this take place, that we are not creating big pot so that um, and we may well eventually, but it, it see, it always seems to me that we just are in. It, it, I mean, I get back to it. I don't I don't see it in the American makeup. The, 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 the tendency to want to, to be, tolerate the kind of controls and and regulation and and uh, that will get in the way of of there being about four pot producers in about 15, 20 years. And they, you know, it, it, to me, it's like. That are going to have based like all of their manufacturing and formulations on research that shows that THC isn't dangerous, 
right? Because if you look through the literature, there's no literature that's just like THC is bad for you. You look at the literature and in a large part, the literature is just like, there's nothing wrong with marijuana. It's not addictive. It can't kill you. And I wonder, that's yeah, I usually done on... That literature is not standing up. I think I haven't done enough research into it, so I don't want to comment. But my, my feeling, I get these things saying, oh, yeah, no, increased in uh, psychotic events. That's what I mean. Kind yeah. of stuff. And my feeling is that, that once your brain chemistry is, particularly when it's early on in your life, before 25, say... Um, is 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 uh, 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 warped particularly by this hyperpotent stuff. That that coming out of that is a whole other thing that we have not described. I mean, remember yeah, most di- of the ditchweed is, is not like ditchweed that you know grows on the side of the road or you get from some farm that doesn't know what they're doing is totally or different. Even what people were smoking in the '60s or something. Like yeah, that. like it's completely different from this thing that you get in a vape pen or you get in the brownie that's been yeah, made right, in an industrial look, laboratory. Yeah, maybe. All I can say is these are my concerns. You were asking yeah. me about legalized marijuana. Those are my yeah. The concerns yeah. that I have, I don't, I don't trust American capitalism to take an inch if you give it to them and not take a mile. I believe that. You know what I'm saying? And, and it, and it could be hippie capitalists. I mean, I've, I've been, I've, I've been up to Mendocino uh, extensively. Been onto Humboldt County. You can see, um, you know, uh, all of that. It just seems to me like it doesn't matter your initial background. You eventually become corrupted by the amount of money you can make and. And at that point, the whole thing begins to to crumble. Anyway, I was just going to just close it down and say that that perspective that you're offering is unique because you often hear of the success with like Portugal and their drug problems by legalizing things. But they didn't. I don't believe that they had the overwhelming capitalist spirit of, you know, free markets. They have as heterogeneous a society as we have, nor as big a society as we have. And people forget they don't mess around with people who are selling dope. They don't allow you to just wander around like they're doing in San Francisco right now, selling fentanyl-laced cocaine and stuff. I mean, it's they don't they don't allow that. They they there is there's a, a whole structure that's in place to make sure that if you are involved in this, that that you you get treatment. You they're pushing people into they're forcing people into treatment and in, in, in Portugal. It's very clear if you read about, about what's going on there. I would say too, that it's a massive difference. Between the United States and population, economic culture, et cetera, et cetera. You could go on and on and on. The difference is between that and 11 million people in Portugal. Yeah, you know I mean? absolutely. That's a really good point. But yeah. it's, it's worth understanding, I think, for the reasons that, that both it's, it's, it's always good to know. How are people doing this? But then the, when it gets to it, it it's like, you know, like in Oregon, you know, oh, well, we based this law on, on Portugal. No, you didn't. Mm. They allow people to say they arrest you for for drugs and they give you citation. Here's an 800 number to call if you need help. No, no, no. In Portugal, they don't mess around with that. They, they they're get they're on your butt. They're going to put you away. They mm. want they want they are put they are mandating treatment for folks who are find themselves in that condition. It's not just like okay, it's groovy, whatever. And and I I just think again, it's it's like we have these 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 progressive DAs who would be doing their own cause of a huge favor if they included some accountability in what they've done. And instead they include none. Yeah. There's no accountability that I can see from the, what's going on in, um, in, in Oregon or in uh, uh, San Francisco or, or even LA where I'm from. 
It just, you know, there needs to be that accountability. There needs to be that leverage. People need to be helped with fentanyl on the street to say it's okay for you to sell fentanyl. That's like saying, well, why don't you just sell cocaine at least with cyanide, for God's sakes? Why don't we just make that legal too? You know, libertarian, you know, wide open. What the hell? Because fentanyl will kill. It kills everybody. There's nobody who's going to survive long term using fentanyl on the street. I'm sorry. It just doesn't, just doesn't happen. The facts are very clear on that, I think. And it's just like shooting a gun into a crowd, you know. And instead, they're saying, well, fentanyl, four grams in, in Colorado. You can literally possess four grams of fentanyl. Unbelievable. Unregulated, Unbelievable. yeah. I don't see that, you know. How many so people can four grams of fentanyl? They have these enormous tent encampments, and, and people will not leave the tent encampments no matter what you offer them. It's because they're all addicted to these very, very powerful drugs, synthetic drugs coming out of Mexico, fentanyl, methamphetamine. Uh, for, for context, a lethal dose of fentanyl is two milligrams. Is what yeah. I just I just looked it up on like the DEA.gov. So if you could right. possess four grams, that means that that is basically a what one in two thousand. That's a that's two thousand lethal doses. Correct. That's and they and that and of course it all depends. A lot of this, of course, depends on your own tolerance, obviously. Sure. And so for some people have been using it's 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 yeah, maybe I shouldn't be trusting more. the DEA website. But yeah. <laughs> the point is the point is that this stuff. You know, I, I'm like heartbroken over what I see in places like Oregon and San Francisco because there was this opportunity to actually do some truly beautiful stuff and instead they just said ah nothing's no problem you know no if you combine drug legalization with drug accountability Mm. and that kind of thing then all of a sudden you get to something that the entire country can agree on instead of becoming fodder for every, you know, for Fox News and every conservative outlet in America, San Francisco is a a, 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 a joke now. Yeah. L.A. is a joke because of this. Now they could have done things that were really great. Instead of saying, they're, you know, going to, going to you're never going to go to prison for shoplifting. Doesn't matter how much you shoplift. Um, they could have said, if you're shoplifting, we're going to arrest you. We may not send you to prison, but there's going to be some accountability. There's going to be, you can't just walk in and steal stuff. You can't just open up enormous train uh, compartments and empty the entire stuff onto the ground. I mean, that's, to me, this is like craziness. It's, 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 and I don't know if that, if that is progressive, I think that's a, Teddy Roosevelt would be aghast at such an idea. But if that is progressive, then forget about it. I don't want to know about it. Yeah. You know, to me, this is we, we are we are like taking this departure was like, anything's cool. It's a it's the it's the it's the left wing version of libertarianism. Nothing matters. You don't have to pay any price for anything. I think and you me, I think you just, nailed it, man. The accountability is, is really where it's at. If you just tack that onto the end of every argument, it's just like, you know, just take, you know, take responsibility for what you did. That's all it is. And society should hold you to that responsibility. But I, 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 and when you get to that, you get to a more just way of meeting out justice. Mm. You don't have to be putting people in prison for 20 years, but you do need accountability. You do need these changes 
that that in these towns I don't see happening, you know. So real quick for you bounce, uh, you got any more books coming out you want to plug or where can people find out about your stuff? Go ahead. Um, no, my website is my name, You can find both my books and my two previous books about Mexico on, well, you name it, Amazon, Audible, uh, eBooks, Barnes and Noble, any independent <laughs> store that you want to support locally, they can get the book if they don't have it, you know, and, um, and if you want to be in touch with me, folks, you can go to my website, samkinyonas.com, and I'm very, very easy to, to get in touch with. And the books are fantastic. You are a beautiful writer. You have vision and clarity. And it's just, they're they're a pleasure to read. So thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Talk to you later, See you now. Bye. See you.